Book Five, Part One of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Five, Part One. While Perseus, the brave son of Jupiter, surrounded at the feast by Cepheus's lords, narrated this, a raging multitude, with sudden outcry filled the royal courts, not with the clamors of a wedding feast, but boisterous rage, portentous of dread war, as when the fury of a great wind strikes a tranquil sea, tempestuous billows roll across the peaceful bosom of the deep, so were the pleasures at the banquet changed to sudden tumult. Foremost of that throng, the rash ringleader Phineas shook his spear, brass-tipped of ash, and shouted, Ha! tis I! I come avenger of my ravished bride. Let now your flittering wings deliver you, or even Jupiter, dissolved in showers of imitation gold. So boasted he, aiming his spear at Perseus. Thus to him cried Cepheus, Hold your hand and strike him not. What strange delusions, O my brother, have compelled you to this crime? Is it the just requital of heroic worth? A fair regarden for the life of her you loved? If truth were known, not Perseus ravished her from you, but either t'was the awful god that rules the Nereides, or Ammon crowned with crescent horns, or that monstrosity of ocean's vast abyss which came to glut his famine on the issue of my loins. Nor was your suit abandoned till the time when she must perish and be lost to you. So cruel are you, seeking my daughter's death, rejoicing lightly in our deep despair." And was it not enough for you to stand supinely by, while she was bound in chains, and offer no assistance, though you were her lover and betrothed? And will you grieve that she was rescued from a dreadful fate, and spoil her champion of his just rewards? Rewards that now may seem magnificent, but not denied to you if you had won and saved, when she was fettered to the rock. Let him whose strength to my declining years restored my child, receive the merit due his words and deeds and know his suit was not preferred to yours, but granted to prevent her certain death. Not deigning to reply, against them Phineas stood, and glancing back from him to Perseus, with alternate looks as doubtful which should feel his first attack made brief delay. Then vain at Perseus hurled his spear, with all the force that rage inspired, but missing him it quivered in the couch. Provoked beyond endurance, Perseus leaped forth from the cushioned seats, and fiercely sent that outwrenched weapon back. It would have pierced his hostile breast, had not the miscreant crouched behind the altars. Oh, perverted good, that thus an altar should abet the wrong! But, though the craven Phineas escaped, not vainly flew the whizzing point, but struck in Rhodus's forehead. As the barb was torn out of the bone, the victim's heels began to kick upon the floor, and spouting blood defiled the festal board. Then truly flame in uncontrolled rage the vulgar crowd, and hurl their harmful darts. And there are some who hold that Cepheus and his son-in-law deserved to die, but Cepheus had passed forth the threshold of his palace, having called on all the gods of hospitality and truth and justice to attest. He gave no comfort to the enemies of peace. Unconquered Pallas is at hand, and holds her aegis to protect her brother's life. She lends him dauntless courage. At the feast was one from India's distant shores whose name was Athos, 
It was said that Limnate, the daughter of the river Ganges, him in Phytrius Caverns Bright had brought to birth. And now at sixteen summers in his prime, the handsome youth was clad in costly robes, a purple mantle with golden fringe covered his shoulders, and a necklace carved of gold enhanced the beauty of his throat. His hair encompassed with a coronal, delighted with sweet myrrh. Well taught was he to hurl the javelin at a distant mark, and none with better skill could stretch the bow. No sooner had he bent the pliant horns than Perseus, with his smoking billet, seized from the mid-altar, struck him on the face, and smashed his features in his broken skull. And when Assyrian Lycabus had seen his dear companion, whom he truly loved, beating his handsome countenance in blood, and when he had bewailed his lost life that ebbed away from that unpiteous wound, he snatched the bow that Athos used and said, let us in single combat seek revenge. Not long will you rejoice the stripling's fate, a deed most worthy shame. So speaking, forth the piercing arrow bounded from the cord which, though avoided, struck the hero's cloak and fastened in its folds. Then Perseus turned upon him with the trusted curving sword, cause of Medusa's death, and drove the blade deep in his breast. The dying victim's eyes, now swimming in a shadowous night, looked round for Athos, whom, beholding, he reclined upon, and ushered to the other world, sad consolation of united death. And Forbus, the descendant of Methion, who hailed from far Syene, with his friend Amphimedon of Libya, in their haste to join the battle, slipped up in the blood, and fell together. Just as they arose, that glittering sword was driven through the throat of Forbus into the ribs of his companion. But Erethus, the son of Actor, swung a battle-axe so weighty, Perseus chose not combat with his curving blade. He seized in his two hands a huge bowl, wrought around with large design, outstanding from its mass. This lifting up he dashes on his foe, who vomits crimson blood, and falling back, beats on the hard floor with his dying head. And next he slew Caucasian Abaris and Polydamon from Semiramis, nobly descended, and Spercius, son Lysidus, long-haired Ulysses, unshorn Clytus and Phlegius, the hero slew, and trampled on the dying heaped around. Not daring to engage his enemy in open contest, Phineas held aloof and hurled his javelin, badly aimed by some mischance or turned it wounded Idas, who had followed neither side, vain hoping thus to shun the conflict. Idas, filled with rage on Phineas, gazed with futile hate, and said, Since I am forced unwilling to such deeds, behold whom you have made your enemy. O savage Phineas, let your recompense be stroke for stroke. So speaking, from the wound he drew the steel, but faint from loss of blood, before his arm could hurl the weapon back, he sank upon his knees. Here also lies Oddities, noblest of the Cephanes, save Cepheus only, slaughtered by the sword of Clymenus and Prothenor lies victim to Hypsius, by his side Hypsius slaughtered by Lincidus falls, and in the midst of this destruction stood Amathion, now an aged man, revered, who feared the gods and stood for upright deeds. And since his years denied him strength for war, he battled with his tongue, and railed and cursed their impious weapons. As that aged man clings to the altar with his trembling hands, Chromis, with ruthless sword, cuts off his head, which straightway falls upon the altar whence his dying tongue denounces them in words of execration, and his soul expires amid the altar flames. Then Brodeus and Ammon, his twin brother, who not knew their equals at the cestus by the hand of Phineas fell, 
for what avails indeed the cestus as a weapon matched with swords? Ampicus by the same hand fell, the priest of Ceres with his temples wreathed in white. And, O oh, Iapetides, not for this did you attend the feast. Your voice attuned melodious to the harp was in request to celebrate the wedding day with song, a work of peace, as you did stand aside, holding the peaceful plectrum in your hand, the mocking pedalus in ridicule said, Go sing your ditties to the Stygian shades. And mocking thus, he drove his pointed sword in your right temple. As your limbs gave way, your dying fingers swept the tuneful strings, and falling, you did chant a mournful dirge. You, to avenge enraged Lycormus, tore a huge bar from the doorpost on the right, and dashing it against the mocker, crushed his neck-bones. As a slaughtered bullock falls, he tumbled to the ground. Then, on the left, Sinifian Pelides began to wrench an oak-plank from the doorpost, but the spear of Corythus, the son of Marmarus, pinioned his right hand to the wooden post, and while he struggled, Abbas pierced his side. He fell not to the floor, but dying hung suspended from the doorpost by his hand. And of the friends of Perseus, Melanius was slain, and Dorylus, whose wealth was large in Nasimonian land. No other lord, as Dorylus, such vast estates possessed. No other owned so many heaps of corn. The missile-steel stood fastened in his groin, obliquely fixed, a fatal spot. And when the author of his wound, Halcyonius, the Bactrian, beheld his victim thus, Rolling his eyes and sobbing forth his soul, he railed, Keep for yourself of all your lands as much as you can cover. And he left the bleeding corpse. But Perseus in revenge hurled after him a spear, which in his need he ripped out from the wound, yet warm, and struck the boaster on the middle of his nose. The piercing steel passed through his nose and neck, remained projecting from the front and back. And while good fortune helped his hand, he slew Clannis and Clytius of one mother born, but with a different wound he slaughtered each. For leveled by a mighty arm, his ashen spear drove through the thighs of Clytius, right and left, and Clannis bit the javelin with his teeth. And by his might Mendesian Celadon and Atreus fell, his mother of the tribes of Palestine. His father was unknown. Atheon also, who could well foresee the things to come, but was at last deceived by some false omen, and Thoactes fell, the armor-bearer of the king, and next the infamous Agirtes, who had slain his father. These he slew, and though his strength was nearly spent, so many more remained, for now the multitude with one accord conspired to slaughter him. From every side the raging troops assailed the better cause. In vain the pious father and the bride, together with her mother, filled the halls with lamentations. For the clash of arms the groans of fallen heroes drowned their cries. Bologna, in a sea of blood, has drenched their household gods, polluted by these deeds, and she endeavors to renew the strife. Perseus, alone against that raging throng, is now surrounded by a myriad men, led on by Phineas, and their flying darts as thick as wintry tail are showered around on every side, grazing his eyes and ears. Quickly he fixed his shoulder firm against the rock of a great pillar, which secured his back from danger, and he faced his foes, and baffled their attack. Upon his left Caonian Malpeus pressed, and on his right an Abathian called Ethamon pressed. As when a tiger from a valley hears the lowing of two herds in separate fields, though hunger urges he knows not on which to spring, but rages equally for each, so Perseus, doubtful which may first attack his left or right, knows not on which to turn, but stands attentive witness to the flight of Malpeus, whom he wounded in the leg, 
nor could he choose. Ethamon, full of rage, pressed on him to inflict a fatal wound deep in his neck, but with incautious force struck the stone pillar with his ringing sword and shattered the metal blade close to the hilt. The flying fragment pierced its owner's neck, but not with mortal wound. In vain he pled for mercy, stretching forth his helpless arms. Perseus transfixed him with his glittering blade, Silenian. But when he saw his strength was yielding to the multitude, he said, since you have forced disaster on yourselves, why should I hesitate to save myself? O friends, avert your faces if you stand before me. And he raised Medusa's head. Thessalus answered him, Seek other dupes to chase with wonders. Just as he prepared to hurl the deadly javelin from his hand, he stood, unmoving in that attitude a marble statue. Ampyx, close to him, exulting in a mighty spirit, made a lunge to pierce Lincides in the breast, but as his sword was flashing in the air, his right arm grew so rigid, there he stood, unable to draw back or thrust it forth. But Nilius, who had feigned himself, begot by sevenfold Nile, and carved his shield with gold and silver streams, alternate seven, shouted, Look, look, O Perseus, him from whom I sprung, and you shall carry to the silent shades a mighty consolation in your death, that you were slain by such a one as I. But in the midst of boasting the last words were silence, and his open mouth, although incapable of motion, seemed intent to utter speech. Then Eric's chiding says, Your craven spirits have benumbed you, not Medusa's poison. Come with me and strike this youthful mover of magician charms down to the ground." He started with a rush, the earth detained his steps, it held him fast. He could not speak, he stood, complete with arms, a statue. Such a penalty was theirs, and justly earned. But nearby there was one, Acontius, who, defending Perseus, saw Medusa as he fought. And at the sight the soldier hardened to an upright stone. Assured he was alive, Astyages now struck him with his long sword, but the blade resounded with a ringing note. And there, astonished at the sound, Astyages himself assumed that nature, and remained with wonder pictured on his marble face. And not to weary with the names of men sprung from the middle classes, there remained two hundred warriors eager for the fight. As soon as they could see Medusa's face, two hundred warriors stiffened into stone. At last, repentant, Phineas dreads the war, unjust, for in a helpless fright he sees the statues standing in strange attitudes and recognizing his adherence, calls on each by name to rescue from that death. Still unbelieving, he begins to touch the bodies nearest to himself, and all are hard stone. Having turned his eyes away, he stretched his hands and arms obliquely back to Perseus, and confessed his wicked deeds, and thus imploring spoke, Remove, I pray, O Perseus, thou invincible, remove from me that dreadful Gorgon. Take away the stone-creating countenance of thy unspeakable Medusa, for we warred not out of hatred nor to gain a throne, but clashed our weapons for a woman's sake. Thy merit proved thy valid claim, and time gave argument for mine. It grieves me not to yield, O bravest, only give me life, and all the rest be thine. Such words implored the craven, never daring to address his eyes to whom he spoke, and thus returned the valiant Perseus. I will grant to you, O timid-hearted Phineas, as behoves your conduct, and it should appear a gift magnanimous to one who fears to move. Take courage, for no steel shall violate your carcass, and moreover you shall be a monument that ages may record your unforgotten name. You shall be seen thus always in the palace where resides my father-in-law, that my surrendered spouse may soften her great grief when she but sees the darling image of her first betrothed. 
He spoke and moved Medusa to that side where Phineas had turned his trembling face, and as he struggled to avert his gaze, his neck grew stiff. The moisture in his eyes was hardened into stone, and since that day his timid face and coward eyes and hands forever shall be guilty as in life. After such deeds, victorious Perseus turned and sought the confines of his native land, together with his bride, which, having reached, he punished Proteus, who by force of arms had routed his own brother from the throne of Argos. By his aid, Acrisius, although his undeserving parent, gained his citadels once more. For Proteus failed, with all his arms and towers unjustly held, to quell the grim-eyed monster, Snake Begin. Yet, not the valor of the youth upheld by many labors, nor his grievous wrongs have softened you, O Polydectes, king of little Seraphis, but bitter hate ungoverned rankles in your hardened heart. There is no limit to your unjust rage. Even his praises are defamed by you, and all your arguments are given to prove Medusa's death a fraud. Perseus rejoined, by this we give our true pledge of the truth, avert your eyes. And by Medusa's face he made the features of that impious king a bloodless stone. Through all these mighty deeds, Pallas, Minerva, had availed to guide her gold-begotten brother. Now she sped, surrounded in a cloud from Seraphis, while Synthus on the right and Gyrus far faded from her view. And where a path, High over the deep sea leads the near way, she winged the air for Thebes, and Helicon haunt of the Virgin Nine. High on that mount she stayed her flight, and with these words bespoke those well-taught sisters. Fame has given to me the knowledge of a new-made fountain, gift of Pegasus, that fleet steed from the blood of dread Medusa sprung. It opened when this hard hoof struck the ground. It is the cause that brought me. For my longing to have seen this fount, miraculous and wonderful, grows not the less in that myself did see the swift steed nascent from maternal blood. To which Urania thus, Whatever the cause that brings thee to our habitation, thou, O goddess, art to us the greatest joy. And now, to answer thee, reports are true, this fountain is the work of Pegasus. And having said these words, she gladly thence conducted Pallas to the sacred streams, and Pallas, after she had long admired that fountain flowing where the hoof had struck, turned round to view the groves of ancient trees, the grottoes and the grass bespangled, rich with flowers unnumbered. Also beautiful she deemed the charm of that locality, a fair surrounding for the studious days of those Nemonian maids. But one of them addressed her thus, O thou, whose valour gave thy mind to greater deeds, if thou hadst stooped to us, Minerva, we had welcomed thee most worthy of our choir. Thy words are true, and well hast thou approved the joys of art in this retreat. Most happy would we be, if only we were safe. But wickedness admits of no restraint, and everything affrights our virgin minds, and everywhere the dreadful Pyrenees haunts our sight. Scarcely have we recovered from the shock. That savage, with his troops of Thrace, had seized the lands of Dallas and of Phocis, where he ruled in tyranny, and when we sought the temples of Parnassus, he observed us on our way, and knowing our estate, pretending to revere our sacred lives, he said, O muses, I beseech you, pause. Choose now the shelter of my roof, and shun the heavy stars that teem with pouring rain. Nor hesitate, for often the glorious gods have entered humbler homes. Moved by his words and by the growing storm, we gave assent, and entered his first house. But presently the storm abated, and the southern wind was conquered by the north, the black clouds fled, and soon the skies were clear. At once we sought to quit the house, but Pyrenees closed all means of exit, and prepared to force our virtue. 
Instantly we spread our wings and so escaped, but on a lofty tower he stood as if to follow and exclaimed, A path for you marks out a way for me. And quite insane, he leaped down from the top of that high tower, falling on his face the bones were crushed, and as his life ebbed out, the ground was crimsoned with his wicked blood. So spoke the muse, and now was heard the sound of pennons in the air, and voices, too, gave salutations from the lofty trees. Minerva, thinking they were human tongues, looked up in question whence the perfect words. But on the boughs nine ugly magpies perched, those mockers of all sounds which now complained their hapless fate. And as she wondering stood, Urania, goddess of the muse, rejoined, Look, those but lately worsted in dispute augment the number of unnumbered birds. Pieris was their father, very rich in lands of Pella, and their mother called Evippe of Paeonia. When she brought them forth, nine times evoked, in labors nine, Lucina's aid. Unduly puffed with pride, because it chanced their number equaled ours, these stupid sisters, hitherto engaged in wordy contest, fared through many towns, through all Haemonia and Achaea, came to us and said, O oh, cease your empty songs attuned to dulcet numbers, that deceive the vulgar untaught throng. If aught is yours of confidence, O thespian deities, contend with us, our number equals yours. We will not be defeated by your arts, nor shall your songs prevail. And conquered, give Hyantian Agonippe, yield to us the Medusian fount, and should we fail, we grant Amethia's plains, to where uprise Paeonia's peaks of snow. Let chosen nymphs award the prize. T'was shameful to contend, it seemed more shameful to submit. At once the chosen nymphs swore justice by their streams, and sat in judgment on their thrones of rock. At once, although the lot had not been cast, the leading sister hastened to begin. She chanted of celestial wars, she gave the giants false renown, she gave the gods small credit for great deeds. She droned out. Forth those deepest realms of earth Typhoeus came, and filled the gods with fear. They turned their backs in flight to Egypt, and the wearied rout, where great Nile spreads his seven-channeled mouth, were there received. Thither the earth begot Typhoeus hastened, but the gods of heaven deceptive shapes assumed, lo, Jupiter, as Libyan Ammon's crooked horns attest, was hidden in the leader of a flock, Apollo in a crow, Bacchus in a goat, Diana in a cat, Venus in a fish, Saturnian Juno in a snow-white cow, Selenian Hermes in an ibis's wings. Such stuff she droned out from her noisy mouth, and then they summoned us, but haply time permits thee not, nor leisure thee permits, that thou shouldst hearken to our melodies. Nay, doubt it not, quoth Pallas, but relate your melodies in order. And she sat beneath the pleasant shadows of the grove, and thus again Urania, on our side we trusted all to one. Which having said, Calliope arose, her glorious hair was bound with ivy, she attuned the chords and chanted as she struck the sounding strings. End of Book 5, Part 1